So welcome, my name is Xenophon Bovadimitris. I'm a professor of primary informatics and data science here at Yale. This is one of our guest expert interviews for a new certificate program in medical software and medical AI. Our guest today is Mr. Corey Johnson, who's the managing partner at Bold Insight, who's a consulting company focusing on user experience and human factors research. And of course, we're going to talk about human factors and usability in medical software, medical devices. Uh, Corey, welcome. Please tell us a little bit more about you, your career today, your company. Absolutely. Thank you, Xenius. Pleasure to be here. Um, so uh, as you said, I am a managing partner at Bold Insight. It's a user experience and human factors consulting firm. Um, I got into this line of work because uh, as an undergrad in psychology, I was fascinated with how the human mind works, how humans perceive the world around them, how they interact with things. But I knew that I didn't want to be a healer. Um, I did not want to go into the, that type of, of psychology. So I found something else more applied to do with it. And I got my master's degree in human factors psychology um, and actually started in automotive UX and human factors um, and did that for some time before joining up with a consulting firm. Uh, User centric was the name of it back then. And uh, those same people who worked with me at that consulting firm are those who uh, I founded Bold Insight with about six years ago. Um, over the course of the last 20 years or so, the nature of the research that we do has uh, evolved and shifted from uh, more non-medical into the more medical device and uh, medical software space. So that currently is about 70% of what we do. So a couple of questions to get started. So first, let's just lay the groundwork here. So what are human factors and why would somebody starting in this space, the medical software, medical device, clinical decision support space, care about them? What's so important about that? So very good question. Um, the, there are all kinds of facets, obviously, to uh, medical software development or any product development. Um, you have the, the engineers who actually build the thing. You have the marketing group who, uh, you know, markets the thing. Uh, the human factors angle on this whole process really is at the intersection of the user, the human, and the product or the medical software itself and how that human interacts with the software. Um, the engineers design something that works. It works when it's used as intended. The human factors folks come in and really explore, okay, but how is it really used? Um, how, do, how do people really use it and what challenges do they have when they're using it? Um, and that's, that's why it's so important to incorporate that mindset into the development of medical software or any type of product. Um, but obviously the stakes are a little bit higher when you're dealing with uh, anything in the medical device space or medical software space. Um, if you're talking about how to make a phone easier to use if someone can't use a phone very well, okay, they're frustrated. If somebody uses a medical device or medical software wrong, somebody can get hurt or worse. Um, so it's critical to incorporate that mindset throughout the entire development process so that not only are you designing the right thing, but you are designing the thing right and you are designing it in such a way that it can be used by the people that it is intended to be used by, not you, the developer, but the people who are actually intended to use it. What would you say is the biggest difference between this type of work outside the medical space and in the medical space? What are these sort of, how does your attitude shift when you're consulting on one versus the other? 
Um, obviously, uh, medical devices and, and medical software is a regulated space. Um, so the, the level of regulation and standardization that is uh, sought in the healthcare and medical device space is much more than in many other spaces. So you might see um, more often outside of medical device and medical software industry, you might see more often kind of um, lo looser or more rapid and guerrilla type user experience and human factors research where the main objective is really to fail early, fail often, learn all you can and take all those learnings and incorporate it into um, ongoing product development. Um, that, that mindset um, largely has, has not quite made it into the medical device space as much yet. Um, and I, I think that is, is something that has been evolving and changing over the years. And I think the, that the, the medical device industry will benefit from that once that is embraced a little bit more. Um, because the, the, the driver currently of the bulk of human factors work that is done in the medical device space are the regulations. Um, that the FDA started regulating human factors more uh, stringently in uh, about 2011. Um, and since then, the, the amount of human factors work that we do in the medical device space has increased exponentially. Um, that, that's really the key driver, which is a good thing. It's driving, it's driving a, more attention to how actual users use these medical-related products, and it is reducing use-related risk associated with those products. Um, but the fact that it's being driven by the regulation even though ultimately it's a good thing that there's more of it, it is also treated as more of a checkbox type activity um, still from time to time. And that it creates some, some misconceptions about what needs to be done and, and when it needs to be done. Mm -hmm. What are the couple of things that regulators look for if you had to sort of list the top two or three issues that people worry about, what would they be? So the key things for uh, the human factors component of a regulatory submission that the, the FDA looks for are the human factors engineering report, which is the, a, a report that summarizes the, the entirety of the human factors effort throughout the whole uh, product development process. Um, a, a component of that is the human factors validation report. So this is, this is the thing, the main thing that is a requirement for certain types of medical devices and medical software be, being commercialized. Um, and that, that validation report summarizes the human factors validation study uh, to assess the safety and or the safe and effective use of the product itself. Um, aside from that report, the next key thing that is looked for is the use-related risk analysis. Um, and that is a subset of whatever overall uh, risk analysis is conducted for a given product that is focused solely on things related to use of the product and the interaction between the human and the product. Um, so the, those are the two main building blocks of, of any human factors component of a regulatory submission. And the, uh, the, the common misconception is that if, if you just do those two things, you're good. Um, and that that is is possible to fake, but it is pretty evident when when it is it is done. And it's really uh, the 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 
the products and the organizations who embrace a user-centered design process throughout development and who incorporate human factors early in that development process, they recognize that that human factors engineering report, that's, that really is a summary of an overall body of effort. It is not a just do it at the end and uh, that's the thing that you do that, to check the box. So am I hearing you correctly here? So if I think of where human factors comes in, let's divide it very crudely. Enable good things, prevent bad things. And the regulatory strategies prevent bad things, obviously, that's there. And what I'm hearing you say is that it would be good if the medical industry also started worrying about enable good things side of things and making things. That's right. That's that's absolutely that's yeah. That's absolutely right. Um, that's part of it. And even even if you even if you were only to focus on prevent bad things, um, that's that's still something that takes more than just waiting until the end of the development process and saying, okay, let's do that final human factors check to make sure that we uh, have prevented all the bad things. That's that that is the wrong time to do that. Okay, so depending on where you're at in the development process for a medical device or medical software, uh, human factors is always important. It may look slightly different depending on where you are in that development process. So uh, we were just talking about what is required uh, by, by the FDA for certain types of submissions and, and what is most important. And you can see at the end here, there's the summative usability validation. That's synonymous with the human factors validation study that I was referring to. Um, and there's also the uh, use-related risk analysis um, that you can see in a couple of different spots here. Um, so those are the two key things, but even earlier than that, so talking pre-design controls, um, there is all kinds of valuable information that needs to be gleaned from the intended end users of uh, uh, medical software or medical device. Um, that you often get by going out into the field, observing them interact with similar products, existing products on the market. Um, and you, you understand what are the unmet needs that these users have? What, what, is, what, are the, the, what is the context of use in which this, these types of products are being used? That's really what informs the, um, the, the initial direction of the, the development process from a use, use perspective. Um, and then kind of moving along to the right, I'm not going to read through every little bit of uh, each one of these, but the, the types of activities that you're doing, it's, it's not always going to be a study, a read, it's not always going to be going out and, and conducting a usability study with the intended end users. In this middle chunk of planning and input here, uh, it's, it's really a lot of planning. It's a lot of thinking through, okay, now that we understand the context of use and the intended end users, um, and we know what the function of this product is going to be. Okay, well, what does that mean for our use-related risk? We need to conduct a use-related risk analysis. We need to plan forward for what human factors activities uh, should be conducted based on the risk profile associated with the product, as well as, back to your previous point, any enablingly good that we want to do. What, what unmet needs do we want to strive to achieve? What usability objectives can we set for ourselves and what types of features are going to be incorporated into the product. So as the product development goes along, then you get into the more, uh, the more testing based uh, paradigms where you've got prototypes of a product and you want to get feedback from you. You want to observe actual users using those prototypes so that you can understand what gaps there are in the uh, in the user experience that need to be addressed prior to getting to this usability, usability validation. Um, so one of the, one of the biggest pitfalls 
um, that that I see is, I, I mean, I've alluded to it already before, but skipping all, a lot of this former human factors effort and jumping right into the validation because the regulators come back to a, a, a sponsor, a manufacturer um, who sends in a submission and it doesn't have human factors data associated with it. And it's that they say, hey, you've got to go do the human factor. You got to summarize your human factors effort and resubmit. And that in those cases, a lot of times those manufacturers will just jump straight to the, the validation because they want to get their product on the market and they want to do what they need to do to do that. And that's understandable, but that um, that's that's hard to do because you, if you haven't really put a product in front of actual end users and observe what can happen, um, you will be surprised when you do that uh, in a validation study. Yeah. Thank you, that was very useful. Let's, a couple of questions for that. One, just thinking about a medical context that's a high risk context, how do you do human factors testing of things that you know, are gonna be used on patients, for example? And you obviously, you're not gonna test the prototype directly on a patient, but what is the, what are some of the, what's the art behind that at a very high level? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the, the most com common thing that we do is simulated use testing. So um, simple example, let's let's take a, a new auto injector or a, a pre-filled syringe. Um, are we going to actually have people inject themselves with something? Probably not. I mean, in some cases we need to, depending on what the research objectives are. But in most cases, no, we don't we don't need to do that. The 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 benefit of actually having people inject themselves, even if with placebo, the, just the thought of having people inject themselves, it, it is far outweighed by how complex that makes it, just everything from a from an IRB perspective, from a, just an ethics perspective, all of that. So um, in that in that example of, of an injectable, uh, we, we use injection pads, we place them at or near the actual injection sites that would be used to simulate the experiences as closely as possible. Um, and uh, the only thing that you lack in that case is the, the sensation of the, of the needle going in, which again, it's possible that that can be critical to uh, the, the establishment of safe and effective use, but most times it's not. Um, and the same thing kind of applies to um, having to simulate more complex use environments, right? Like a, it's, it's, it's one thing to, um, you know, put, sit someone down in a room and have them use an, an AED, a, a defibrillator on a, a mannequin laying in the room. It's another thing to really mock up a chaotic emergency room environment and have lo lots of lights and sounds going on and ask them to do the same thing. Um, it, it, it sounds, it sounds like it's common sense to say that when you say it, but it's another thing to actually execute it. Um, and you see, you see kind of a, a profound difference in user in, in human behavior when you put a, a human in that kind of situation. How do you simulate stress? So like a doctor in an emergency room situation, you can tell them all you want that this is, you have to imagine that you're stressed, but they're not like the simulation setup. So how do you... That's a good question. Um, we, we have used, we use a number of different ways. We have... Um, escalating a rapid sound. So, I mean, we, we, we stimulate their senses, right? We, we use sounds, we use lights, we use um, interruptions. We, we use different, we, we speak to them differently. That's not a, it's not instruction to, you know, pretend that you are 
but we may have an actor who is yelling at them while they're doing something. <laughs> Depending on the situation, you can use lots of different ways to, to simulate stress. And the, the challenge is um, walking that fine line between simulating enough stress, but also staying within ethical boundaries. Okay, so let's talk a little bit more about the regulatory side. This is medical software. We regulate it, whether we like it or not. So you had mentioned there's some issues here with SAMD in particular, digital therapeutics, some obviously the challenge between requirements and best practices in industry. Let's just review a little bit of that material. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the, the requirements versus be best practices, I think I've um, I've, I've kind of hammered hammered home uh, just, just differentiating between doing a validation study and then actually incorporating human factors into the development process. So that's the requirements versus best practices. But um, software as a medical device uh, does have its own unique challenges from a regulatory perspective that are uh, still unaddressed. It is, it is a work in progress. Um, the, the regulatory pathways for medical devices and combination products uh, are designed for those things. And this it's designed for a product to be released onto the market. And then the product doesn't change while it's on the market. Software, obviously, that's not necessarily true. You're pushing updates. You're changing how things work all the time. And that the, the, the regulatory uh, environment is not, is not set up to handle that um, yet. So um, some years back, the FDA uh, conducted a uh, pre-certification program pilot, um, whereby they were aiming to address this issue. They say, okay, we, we understand that, this, that the traditional regulatory pathways don't work very well for, uh, for medical software. Um, and they conducted this pilot to establish whether or not it would be feasible to certify not a product, but an organization to establish that the organization has sufficient controls in place such that the regulatory body trusts that the, uh, the, the, the safety and efficacy of the product that products that they release um, are okay. And there's different tiers of it. I, I won't dive into too much detail in terms of how that's set up, but it's risk-based, not surprisingly. It's if you have a, a medical software that provides information only and there's there's no impact ultimately to how a, a, a treatment is delivered, then that's going to be fairly low risk in most cases. But if you have something that is um, a, a software that is actually controlling or having a significant input to how care is delivered for a condition or a circumstance that um, has the ability to end someone's life, obviously that's going to be a higher risk. And they're are different levels of investigation into those. But if you're pushing out updates for the former, then uh, th there's limited review needed. But if it, still, if even if you're a certified organization, if you go on the on the latter end, then of course more scrutiny is needed. But that that level of um, acknowledgement uh, that that there is some reform needed in the regulatory environment to handle, uh, better handle medical software. It's, it's a step in the right direction that the pilot program is concluded. There's a report available to read about um, and we'll see where the FDA takes it from there. So when I look at regulations, you know, as a software person, I think it's a, they're written for hardware basically. And we are sort of porting on software on top with a little bit of tweak here and there as you alluded. But now we move to AI and I think 
in many ways, AI is to software or software is to hardware. And it looks superficially similar, but it's very different. And when we get to generative AI, there's even one more step on that path. What's the, I mean, to me, explainability in AI is almost like a human factors as issue. It's a safety, comprehensibility, human machine communication. What are you seeing there? What is the beginnings of that field look like in your mind? Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a good question. I mean, no, no talk. Uh, would be complete right now without talking about AI, right? So um, the, there there are a number of implications for both how human factors research is conducted as well as um, the impl implications for the, the, the end user experience when you incorporate AI into a product. Um, so just real quickly, since this is the, the less interesting of those two, but for how we conduct our research, I mean, we are leaning on AI to enable us to do things more efficiently with the research that we conduct and all those things. Okay, great. That's one side of it. Um, but when you're talking about, okay, how, how does incorporation of AI into a system affect the use-related risk associated with the system? What types of things do you need to think about? Um, when AI is incorporated, that that gets very interesting. And um, the the things that you have to pay attention to from a user experience and human factors perspective with AI, to boil it down, I mean, super high level trust and ethics. Um, I, I mean, that's that's what it comes down to. That those two things are they impact fundamentally how a, a user of a product is going to experience use of that product. So if you have a uh, if, if you have a, a, an AI-enabled um, imaging software, for example, that recognizes patterns and helps assist a, a, a physician to make determination of what they see in, in medical imaging, um, how, how is that information presented in such a way that the physician has, has faith, has trust that what they, what they are being told by the AI is accurate? Um, it's It's easy to say, okay, well, there's always going to be people who don't trust it or people who aren't going to pay attention. True. However, you can design the way information is presented in such a way that it, it encourages that trust um, or it calls attention to areas that need attention to make a determination of trust. Um, I, I mean, the, the, there's, a, there's a profound impact on uh, how people perceive that information depending on how it is presented. Um, so that's when when we think about how AI has an impact on on end user experience, that's one of the key things um, that that we are we are looking at. Actually, the next step in that, in many ways, this is strictly not the software, but even the report that comes out of the medical process, right? So, mm -hmm. radiologists write a report that the patient looks at, and now with new rules, the patient gets that report at the same time as their doctor, which causes huge amounts of problems in medicine. Because you get to see what's wrong with you before your doctor can tell you, don't worry, it sounds horrible. But but that's also, to me, somewhat of a human factors issue. How does how do, do these things get communicated so that the patient doesn't get confused by the information that's presented to them, get stressed? We have all kinds of medical complications. because, And that's where some, there's some interesting with generative AI there in terms of rewriting reports. And again, that's going to be a very interesting field to see how we... Even absolutely validate tests i don't know how that's going to happen but that's early days there i mean absolutely i mean you think back to so you 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 previously said that uh ai to software is like software to hardware 
So, I mean, think back to uh, all the uh, WebMD doctorates that we had when WebMD came out, right? And then again, multiply that by an exponential factor when you have AI doing, you know, the next step of that thing. Um, so it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's timing. It's how the information is presented. There's, I mean, there's huge potential to, to leverage AI to reduce burden on care teams, mm -hmm. no doubt. Um, but to your point, you have to be careful with how you do that. You, you, you need to do it in such a way that the, that the information that is being received by the patient is appropriate, timely, understandable, um, all of those things. So, Corey, we've gone about, I don't know, half an hour, 40 minutes. I don't want to keep you here much longer. Is there anything else you would like to add? Do we miss something that you feel is important for students, for people hearing about human factors for the first time, any of that? Uh, I will just say, since it's, it is such a, a hot topic, uh, that we we do have a book out on AI and UX um, that you can go check out if you want to learn more on, on that particular topic. Um, and just uh, in terms of, of references, if, if you want to, to learn more about the human factors process in, in medical device and medical software development, um, there are plenty of industry standards and guidance documents out there. Um, the, the key ones to refer to would be uh, ISO IEC 62366. There is a corresponding CDRH guidance, also some CEDAR guidance uh, on those topics and also HE75. Thank you for taking the time. All right. Thank you very much. Appreciate it.